0: Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to
1: invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey
0: guys, it's Johnny FD and welcome to Invest Like a Boss episode
1: 46. I'm here Sam Marks. Hey, Johnny. Hey, bosses. This week we are back with Leif Simon of the liveandinvestoverseas.com website. And he also produces a bunch of cool content, the offshore living letter. And this week we're going to talk about the flags theory. That's the five flags of diversification.
0: So I'm excited about this because I know after, I think it was episode 19 with Simon Black, a lot of people were like, this is you know, such a great episode. But we wish you guys would have kind of dove more into. Offshore living or having secondary passports or residency or in extra tax savings. And this week, I think we're going to jump into all of that.
1: Yeah. And this is stuff that you and I do, kind of whether we intend to or not, but diversifying yourself both in banking, residency, places to live, and kind of spreading out some assets physically, dotting it around the world in a sense. So this is fun stuff. I think it's really important that everyone has a basis for this stuff. Even if they're they're really localized and location independent, I think it's really smart stuff to be thinking about. And there's no other better expert than Leif Simon in the field.
0: Yeah. So I'm definitely excited. Uh, at the end of this episode, Sam and I are going to wrap this up again. And I think we're going to have a lot to talk about because both Sam and I are actually living this. So let's just jump straight into this episode.
1: Guys, welcome back to another episode of Invest Like a Boss. Leif, we're happy to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We are really looking forward to doing this episode and I've been looking forward to doing it for a long time. I think internationalizing oneself is something that's very important, something I believe in firmly and have been practicing. And I know a lot of the listeners either do or intend to. And before we jump into flag theory, I was hoping you could just give us a little bit of background on, you know, where you're living, where you've lived before and how you originally got into this niche profession.
2: Well, at the moment, I'm living in Panama, but I've lived and worked in uh, seven different countries. Uh, spent a lot of time in Ireland and France, um, and then been in Panama for the last uh, nine years. And. For myself, I've always been interested in just travel and international things since I was in high school. So I went and got my uh, graduate degree from Thunderbird, which is it was an international master's degree and had my first job out of there working for an oil company overseas. And that gave me the bug and then uh, I met my wife eventually and we moved to Ireland and that got me started more formally internationalizing my life and starting to invest overseas, um, mostly in real estate. Real estate's my main main thing. Nice. So we had Simon Black back
1: on episode 19 and we, but we didn't actually talk about kind of internationalizing in a sense, talking much more about just investing purely. So this is kind of the first episode that we'll jump into the unique topic. Um, how long have you been doing the offshore living letter?
2: Uh, I think we started the offshore living letter maybe five or six years ago. Um, and that's just a free twice a week, uh, e-letter. Mm-hmm. And we have, we have some paid subscription services as, as well. I've been writing uh, more about real estate investment much longer. I've been writing about that for closer to 18 years and uh, really started writing the the more direct offshore structures, asset protection stuff um, since I moved to Panama.
1: Gotcha. I actually thought you may have been British, but it sounds like you're American.
2: I, I, I am American. And yeah, my parents left me with a lovely name. I can go anywhere in the world and confuse people. Um, <laughs> so. The last name of Simon, um, right? People think um, that's my first name when I'm traveling in Europe.
1: Yeah, and first name of Leif, I was thinking Leif Erickson.
2: Right, exactly. And then of course my parents had to go and spell it wrong. So better <laughs> it's better to be unique, credit, I, I think.
1: Uh, and how about how about your audience? Is your audience mostly North American as well, or or other Western countries? Yeah,
2: yeah. It's mo- it's mostly North Americans. Um, you know, I would say ninety percent uh, U.S maybe 8% Canadians and another 2% of English speakers from elsewhere, which um, doesn't necessarily mean native English speakers. I know we have, have Brazilian readers and Mexican readers and Spanish readers and French readers. Very cool.
1: Awesome, man. Well, let's dive into the five flags theory of diversification. And I guess just to start, could you kind of give us a high level introduction of flag theory or five flags approach?
2: sure and it I, it wasn't me it wasn't anybody of this era that came up with this uh, five flags uh theory or concept it was actually somebody out of the uk um probably 30 years ago maybe more mm-hmm. um to simplify the concept so you know the 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 five flags approach is really that you um plant an international flag in different countries for each of the aspects of your life. So, you know, one aspect that's talked about is banking. One is residency. One is citizenship. One is uh, assets or investing. One is business. People throw in taxes as kind of a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a flag per se, but it's something you have to consider when you're when you're getting involved in this. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that you you each one of those is in a different country so that if something happens, you don't have all of your – flags in one basket as it, as it would be mm-hmm. um, so that you have some diversification and, and options open to you. And you can certainly plant more than one banking flag, for example, in more than one country. We, we certainly recommend that. Uh, so, it's, it's, uh, you'll end up with more, five, more than five flags planted altogether once you uh, get to full diversification.
1: Mm-hmm. So, this is all really based around inter, internationalizing oneself and almost kind of building redundancies and... In all all sides of your life or all, you know, especially financial sides of your life and in travel, uh, travel, certain travel aspects. And I've read somewhere that some people consider cyberspace or kind of cybersecurity as a six flag. Do you guys consider that? Why or why not?
2: Um, yeah, I'm not quite as paranoid as, as others are, but certainly, um, you know, internet security, email security, and, uh, just security of your documents are, uh, are, could fall into a, you know, a broad six flag, kind of like taxes. It's, it's not country specific, but it's, Mm -hmm. um, it covers everything you do. Um, you know, I don't put anything out there on the cloud. My IT guy keeps saying, oh, we need to just store everything on the cloud. It'll be faster for the business Mm and faster for everything else. Like if it's on the cloud, I don't control it. And that's part of how I structure just my investments and my uh, banking and things like that are things that I can more easily control that uh, somebody else can't just take away from me with the push of a button. Absolutely. Yeah. I I have a, a
1: very good friend that was involved in a Bitcoin exchange. And they got... I'm not sure if they got full, properly indicted, but they were under investigation with the FBI. And it's amazing how many things that they have access to quickly. And they right. went through everything from you know his emails to all of his di- different phone application, messenger services and... Things that were left over from college that he had no idea that he even had. So it's, it's amazing <laughs> how much, you know, anything that you have is pretty much out there unless you take really proactive steps to, to, uh, right. block and avoid it. So of the five, of the five flags, you mentioned them, um, just at a high level. Is there kind of a recommended first place? Someone just looks at this holistically and says, this is something I'm really interested in doing. Does it, is it depend on? each person and, and where they are in life and what's important to them? Or do you think there's one of the five flags is always kind of easiest to, to start on?
2: Well, yeah, it's certainly going to depend on on the individual and their and their circumstances. But the easiest flag to plant is banking. Mm-hmm. Um, you can open up a bank account offshore um, in several jurisdictions still without actually having to, to show up in person for a... a, a in person meeting with the banker. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to do that because of all the know your client rules in place and the U.S. Treasury clamping down on, um, uh, you know, banking jurisdictions. Um, but Belize is still one place where you can open an account without having to go to Belize. You can do it remotely. And, uh, even, uh, Barclays in the UK will open an international account for Americans over the phone. Um, you're going to be on the phone with them for an hour, but. Um, at last I knew, they uh, still do that. So there's a few places where it is, is fairly easy. And it's a good first step um, for people
1: uh, to, to get their feet wet with uh, internationalizing. So you mentioned a couple of the top jurisdictions, uh, Belize and the UK being places that are readily available. I had set up a bank account in Hong Kong and Singapore about four or five years ago. And I went back um, with a with a friend and he was trying to set one up and he just couldn't set it up. It, even in person, they wouldn't set it up for them. And I'm, I'm guessing a lot of that is now due to FATCA.
2: Yeah. If, well, for a few years it was, it was FATCA, and, and we have horror stories from, from readers um, and friends where bank accounts were just closed because they were American and the bank didn't know what to do with them because they didn't know what FATCA was going to uh, play out. And now FATCA's mostly played out and all the regulations are in place. And so, so banks are still leery. Some banks especially are still leery of Americans, mm-hmm. but now more what's taken over is concern over money laundering. Um and so now that the US has FATCA in place, the Treasury Department has turned its uh, uh face to uh money laundering concerns. And so like in Panama, for example, there's at least three banks um that I know of that have um been investigated for money laundering. One bank was actually shut down, taken over by the banking superintendencia here. Um and that's and there's other banks in Mexico and Europe that I know of that have been shut down for money laundering concerns, so that's where the U.S. Treasury is is paying attention to now. And so, of course, the banks are paranoid, and would they, you know, again, hire, know your client uh, determination and information, and and sometimes they'll just flat out say no because whatever is in the documentation you provide them, they see some risk and and they're not willing to take uh, take a risk.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you think? A lot of countries will start to. I I was always thinking when FACTA got introduced and it was like this mountain of paperwork for other countries and banks to handle on behalf of American citizens. I was like, okay, either everyone's going to pull against this and say, you know, forget about it. We're not, we're not, we're not complying with that. Or more and more countries are going to start kind of introducing their own form of of FACTA. Do you have an opinion on which way you think it's going to
2: go? Yeah, I think the, I think the countries, the OECD countries in particular are looking at it and saying, well, well, if the U.S. can get away with it. Maybe we can force banks to send us information as well for, uh, you know, so they can track assets and, and anybody who's not paying taxes. The one difference for, you know, if you're a citizen of Germany or France or any country except the U.S. and you're not living in your home country, you don't owe taxes in your home country. Yeah. So. They're mostly trying to catch people who are living there that are hiding money offshore. Um, the U.S. is trying to catch everybody, and from the numbers I've seen with regard to uh, how much money they've collected because of uh, FATCA and scaring people into uh, uh, telling the IRS about their un, untaxed uh, income, mm-hmm. it's it's much less than what the cost to the banks has been to implement the uh, implement the uh, yeah. the program for, for for FATCA. So the banks would have been better off just sending the IRS money and. Uh, calling it a day. That would have been better off too. <laughs> lot, it would, it would, would have saved a lot of headaches. The countries are try and, yeah, sorry. The other countries are going to try and squeeze taxes out wherever they can. Obviously, you know the, the debt uh, that most Western countries have right now has to be figured out somehow. They either got to print more money or, or collect more money.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So from a high level, for any of the countries that we've kind of been talking about, to set up a, a bank account in a in a second country... Is the, the main reason just kind of systemic risk and if something happens in your in your country and you have all your money in that banking system, you can be really exposed or do you see lots of other benefits?
2: Right. So, it depends on how you're going to set up your life internationally. Um, in my case, I have multiple bank accounts in multiple countries, not for necessary economic risks in different countries, um, but because I have practical purposes. So, mm-hmm. the, the first account someone might open if they're still living in their home country is just to move some money out of their home country for, you know, economic peace of mind, mm-hmm. but also um currency peace of mind. So, you know, if you move $50,000 out of the US and put it in an offshore bank and switch that over to euros right now, for example, with the euro being you know, relatively weak and expected to get stronger in the, you know, in the next 12 months, um that can work for a lot of people. Then if you're going to own property or spend time in another country, where you need a, a, basically an operating account for yourself um, to collect rents or pay bills and things like that. It's another reason to have a have a bank account. So wherever I have a rental property, I have a bank account so that we can I can transact easily yeah, um, nice. at a local level. And then, as I mentioned, we recommend you know planting multiple banking flags. Going back to some of what you were just saying, the you know your friend had a hard time opening an account. We've had people had accounts closed. If you've got an offshore account in say Panama and your Panama bank sends you an email, and this actually happened to a reader a couple weeks ago, sends you an email saying we're closing your account today. Um, come pick up your cashier's check. Well, what do you, what are you going to do? Um, so having a, if he had had a second account in Panama, he could have transferred that money, um, to the second account. Uh, had he been given proper notice mm-hmm. by the bank. Um, without having to come down to Panama and pick up a cashier's check and try and figure out what to do with his money.
1: Yeah. The same thing just actually happened to me in a similar but but not exact uh, scenario in, in Hong Kong where I have a, a safety deposit box. And I got a letter saying, we're closing your safety deposit box. And I was like, what is going on? I was like, this is super sketchy. And I, you know, it's 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 <laughs> even with a Premier account and and HSBC Hong Kong, it's still really right. pretty difficult to resolve things over the phone. He ends up being midnight when you got to call them if you're in the East Coast, and uh, and I I finally figured out that they're actually just shutting down all the safety deposit boxes at this pr- specific location and sh- shutting down the location. I thought originally they just target me for being an American. Um, But it's the same situation. It's like They're like, you got to come pick up your stuff within the next six weeks. I'm like, well, I can't. I'm not coming back to Hong Kong. (laughs) So, I'm still going through trying to figure out how they're going to hold my stuff in in a safe spot for me. Um, And I I haven't resolved it yet. But I was at least relieved to know that I wasn't being targeted because I was an American. It was just a a closure of an actual branch.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's not – it isn't individual specific. It's just the whole operation shifts. Mm -hmm. And that was the case with the one bank here in Panama. It wasn't, it wasn't Americans that had anything to do with the money laundering that shut this bank down. It was Panamanians, but every, everybody, including Americans who had accounts there now have their, their accounts frozen. Mm, Gotcha.
1: So let's move on to a second flag, which is residency. Not something I've been able to make much progress on, although I live outside the U S almost the entire year. But why is foreign residency important for, you know, a lot of people basically?
2: well a lot of people um see it as a as a backup plan plan b is a term going around a lot in in our industry right now and that means you know if something goes seriously wrong for whatever reason in the your home country um then you can get on a plane and buy a one-way ticket and arrive to the country where you have uh, a second residency and be admitted to that country and not have to worry about leaving it um, if you have uh, a permanent residency card. So that's, you know, as a as a plan B, as an escape hatch kind of thing, a second residency uh, can make sense. So some people are doing that and still, you know, living in the U.S. Second residency also is if you want to just move to another country. So if you wanted to move to Panama to retire or live or whatever, um, you could play the... Border run game, which is getting harder and harder um, around the world, which mm-hmm. is you come in for the 90 day tourist visa and then you at 90 days, you run across the border to Costa Rica. And in, in the case of Panama, um, spend the night and then come back the next day and you get another 90 days. Uh, countries frown upon that. And there, again, more and more countries who used to be big in Thailand as well. Yeah, um, that's, <laughs>
1: that's, that's where we spent a lot of the last three, or four years. Um, and they've, that's, that's been majorly cracked down on people used to just. Take a taxi across the Myanmar Mar border, have a beer, and come back. And uh, right, and now it's much much more difficult.
2: Yeah. So, so having the second residency and and in a place that you're actually living definitely makes sense. A lot of people didn't do it because it it comes at a cost. You know, if you're using an attorney to help you plus the government fees, but I I figured the cost of running across the border to Thailand, you know, every ninety days to get a beer adds up. Pretty quickly. So, you know, paying whatever the, the government fees are is probably worth it. Um, and the, then the, the carry on benefit um, with a second residency is most countries, um, once you've had residency for a certain period of time, uh, allow you to become naturalized. So that can, so a second residency can lead to um, an inexpensive way to get a, a second citizenship.
1: And what so I know there's a lot of different ways to get residency. And a lot of it has to do with some. Sometimes it's financial, and sometimes it is just being present in the jurisdiction or opening bank accounts. But in your opinion, you know, straight straight off the hip, someone wants to get a, a residency. They don't have a half a million dollars to to uh, to go buy an investment property of some sort. What do you think the best way is, or the best countries are to get a residency?
2: So, as for for a second residency. Um... Option is for Plan B. Right now, really, the, the top three would be the Dominican Republic, Panama, and Colombia. And, part, and so, the one thing you have to consider if it's a if it's a backup residency and you're still plan on living in your home country, um, you don't want to lose your residency in the country you're setting this up in because for for lack of spending enough time in the country. So, um, the, the the negative example is Ecuador. If you get residency in Ecuador. You have to, uh, you can't be out of the country for more than 90 days in the first two years. Okay. Wow. So that, that doesn't work for a backup plan. Panama and Colombia, um, depending on the residency type, it's, it's once every six months or once every two years in those countries that you have to be be in the country. So you fly to Panama, you know, once every two years to check on your bank account and you can be in the country for a day and you're good. Um, Dominican Republic, you really only need to be back once every four years to renew your residency card. And even in that case, if you don't come back in four years, when you do come back, you, if you're willing to pay the, the monthly penalty, um, then you just pay the penalty and renew your uh, renew your residency. It's, it's practically impossible, according to our attorney there, to, to lose your residency status.
1: Mm-hmm. And with any of these countries, do you have to be careful of military... I know some countries like, say, Singapore... It's mandatory that you do military service. Is that only on citizenship or can that can that be on residency as well?
2: I've never heard of it on residency, but yeah, certain countries have it for for citizenship. The other two that I know um are are Greece and Israel off the top of my head. So it's not it's not common, but certainly something to uh, to confirm before you uh you get that uh second citizenship. There's also age limits. So if you're if you're older than forty-five, I think in most cases you're you're probably safe.
1: Okay, I gotcha. And I I guess one other thing to be careful of would be taxation based on residency. So I know that again, there's some countries in the world that if you're considered a resident, you're taxed. I think maybe a lot of countries would be like that. Uh, but then it's, it's maybe also dependent on how many days you're in that country, not necessarily if you're, if you're considered a residency or I'm sorry, if you're considered a resident. Do you have a, do you have any cautions on that?
2: Yeah. It it, is, you know, the typical, um, Management answer is it de- it depends, but you're, you're absolutely right. So just because you have legal residency doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up being a tax resident of that country. Um, and even if you don't have legal residency, if you spend more than 183 days or 183 days or more um, in a country, technically you are a, a, a tax resident even without legal residency. Um, so those 11 million illegal immigrants in the U.S., they're, they're still tax residents and should be paying taxes in the U.S., and some right. of them are. Um, and so what, right, you don't want to create a tax burden, an unnecessary tax burden by setting up a backup residency. Um, so that's another reason that a country like Panama or the Dominican Republic makes sense because those, Panama specifically is a jurisdictional taxation, uh, country. So you're only taxed in Panama on what you earn in Panama. Mm-hmm. So even if you are a tax resident and a legal resident, if you don't earn any money in Panama, you won't pay any taxes in Panama. Um, Dominican Republic is basically the same. There's a few uh, uh, foreign uh, sources of income that they that they will tax if you're a tax resident. But if you're not spending the 183 days there, you wouldn't be considered a tax resident in the DRE if you have legal residency.
1: Right. And then if you are a tax resident, you end up paying tax in that country. It's not necessarily a terrible thing because a lot of the countries will have Tax agreements with the other countries. I forget exactly the terminology used, but if it would be, if you pay, say, tax in Panama, then you likely wouldn't have to pay tax in America or you get some type of credit towards your American taxes.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and so there's, there is a lot of confusion out there that, uh, that there has to be a, uh, a tax treaty that there, there doesn't. Um, for, on the US side, what basically what a tax treaty does is tell, um, with each country what their, Able to tax on, and it's and it's mostly for corporations um, that these are put together, and it comes into play for retirees um, because the tax treaties, basically most of the ones that I've read, I've read only three, um, that the U.S. gets to tax Social Security, and the country you're living in, if you're an American, gets to tax any other pension income, like a like a state pension or or a company pension, um, on the paying the actual tax side of things right the us has um the foreign tax credit available so if you say you're living in colombia and you have tax on your uh income in colombia and you pay you're supposed to report that tax to the us as well and there's a tax calculation on that whatever you paid in colombia would could be put against that same tax for that same income on your us return so in theory you should never pay more in total taxes then the highest, uh, tax of whichever country. So if you live in a high tax country like France or Japan, you could end up paying more in taxes than you would in, if you were in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But in those cases, you wouldn't pay the U.S. anything. You'd just be paying all your tax to, to one of those countries. If you're in a low tax country like, um, you know, Panama or the DR and you're earning money there, you would pay pay no more than what you would have paid in the States if you were in the States anyway.
1: Speaking of Colombia, I, I recently read that There's now a new country. I I believe it used to only be like 2 countries in the world that taxed on worldwide income. It was America or the United States and and some really small country in Africa, I believe. But Eritrea. There you go. Yeah. And (laughs) so, I always just said there's only one country in the world that, that taxed on worldwide income. That was the United States. But... I recently read. I thought it may have been Colombia or some other, you know, larger country recently introduced taxation on worldwide income. Is that right, or maybe I read that wrong?
2: Not for citizens. Um, it, it's not based on citizenship. Mm-hmm. On based on residency, the majority of countries around the world tax on worldwide income. So if you're if you're a tax resident of Colombia, you're meant to pay tax on your worldwide income, even if it's not in Colombia. There was an article. I don't know. Last year, or maybe the year before, that came out um implying and it was it was poorly written and everybody had to run around and do some research mm-hmm. that ch- that China was now taxing its citizens on their worldwide income as citizens not as residents and w- what it turned out to be it was just poorly written article um China was just finally um imposing the worldwide taxation on Chinese residents so there were a lot of Chinese uh wealthy Chinese who had offshore <laughs> offshore from China businesses and they weren't reporting that income or paying taxes in China and China finally cracked down on that. Um but so no as as far as I know there's been no change in other countries. The US and Eritrea are the only two and Eritrea makes it fairly easy for you. They um you're just supposed to pay um a a small percentage. I forget it's less than five percent. I want to say it's um one percent on your gross income and send them a check. Mm,
1: that's amazing. Uh,
2: I, I I, I doubt anybody does, but
1: <laughs> I think a lot of countries have a have a long way to go in terms of tax taxation infrastructure before they're able to to really get their heads around taxing people on a, on their worldwide income. I know I have a lot of like, British and European friends that do business overseas. And I'm just, I always tell them like, you, you guys just have it so good. You just, you have no idea what it's like to be an American right. and pay on your, on worldwide income. And, and no one really has the experience of doing it except for people from the United States. So people just can't relate to it, but massive, massive advantages for, you know, people from just about any country that want to, you know, move abroad and, and conduct business. So
2: exactly. Yeah. So,
1: so that takes us into citizenship and, you know, are there are a lot of benefits to having citizenship. Above and beyond having residency or does, does residency sometime have the exact same benefits as citizenship?
2: So the residency really has the same benefits as citizenship, as long as it's permanent residency, um, and not some temporary thing you have to renew, uh, every year. Mm -hmm. And so the, the added benefit of citizenship, of course, is the, is the passport. And so people ask all the time, well, well, what do I care if I have a second passport? Well, one is if you want to give up your U.S. citizenship or your current citizenship, um, and a lot of Americans are giving up their, uh, citizenship for various reasons, uh, not, to mention the FATCA tax mm-hmm. filing requirements, if if you've lived overseas for 35 years, haven't been back to the states, have forget played, it, <laughs> lost all connection with the states. Why are you still paying a tax account two thousand dollars a year to send a report to the IRS saying that you don't know them anything? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one side of the second citizenship. Then then travel aspects. I, we have one client who uh, spends a lot of time in the Middle East. He's a consultant. He goes into Arab countries and he goes into Israel. He doesn't have a second citizenship, but he does actually have two U.S. passports, which you, you can get if you travel a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so he uses one to go into Israel and he uses the others to go into the Arab countries so he doesn't have any problems when he's right. entering the Arab countries. Then that's a, a, a typical kind of story for people who travel in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I have Irish citizenship for for uh, from the amount of time that I spent in Ireland, and the other benefit really is um, uh, visas, visa requirements. So the best example I have personally is Brazil requires Americans to get, um, and that actually may be coming to an end. I I read uh, recently, but uh, Brazil has required. Americans to get a five-year multi-entry visa in advance of going to uh, Brazil. Not a problem if you're living in the States and, you're pass- and you don't travel a lot. You send your passport to the Brazilian consulate in D.C., get your multi-entry visa, pay your 150 bucks or whatever. But with my Irish passport, I don't have to worry about that. I can get on a plane tomorrow and just go into Brazil and use my Irish passport. Um, so it, it's, it's not a big benefit for most people, but it's certainly uh, a potential benefit and it was also a benefit traveling into Chile and Argentina a few years ago, um, when they had, they both had $165 reciprocity fee mm-hmm. to pay at the airport. Um, the people with only American passports went to the left to pay their fee. My wife and I went to the right with our Irish passports and, and saved ourselves 165 bucks each.
1: Yeah. And on the travel side, I know a lot of people take passports for granted as a good travel document, especially, uh, ones from the United States, Britain, a lot of places in Europe, you can pretty much jump on a plane and go just about anywhere that you could want to go and not really have to think about visas. And it actually it hit me for the first time when I was in... I was over in Asia and I'm like, you know, I'm going to fly to India. I want to check out India. And I've never in my life even thought about visas. <laughs> and I fly to India and I'm at Calcutta Airport and they're like, uh you, you need a visa to get in. And I ended up staying in like airport purgatory for 24 hours before I can fly back <laughs> to Asia. Right. But it's, it's, it's worth noting that a lot of people have, re- you know, th- their passport is a really, really crappy travel document. And we, we take it for granted, but you can never know right. what the, the future holds. Uh, you know, things could tighten up. People could, you know, eventually it could be open borders or, or not. And having, you know, having a US passport today is a great travel document. But in twenty years, you have no idea. A lot of countries might close their doors, or getting a visa before travel required. And and in that in that case, having another passport that that might not follow under the same rule set is definitely a good idea.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So when it comes to citizenship, again, similar to residency, there's seems to be a lot of different ways to obtain it. And you mentioned you had an Irish one, which immediately I was thinking, oh, it must have been through. Through your ancestry, but it seems like it was more based on how much time you spent there
2: it, exactly so there's three ways essentially to get a second citizenship one is ancestry and if you if you can you and you can easily pull the documentation together even if you don't think about it or don't think you'll ever need it, go do it today because as you said you know r- the rules change rules change for everything for banking for residency for these ancestry uh citizenships um Go and get it. Ireland, um, Italy, I think Germany, although Germany doesn't allow for dual, nas- uh, dual citizenship. Um, even the UK and some other countries in Europe, uh, Hungary right now is one, um, that's fairly easy for, through ancestry. Um, allow for the children or grandchildren of someone who was a citizen of that country to, uh, to apply for naturalization. And I know a bunch of people have done it through Ireland. In Ireland, though, we did it through um putting our time in, if you will. So uh, there's most countries allow for naturalization after some period of, of residency. It, the shortest is Paraguay and the Dominican Republic, which are both uh, technically three years, although the DR has a fast track program that after six months under the one program, you can apply for naturalization. Um, and Ireland and most other countries uh, are at the five-year range. Portugal, which is another one of our recommended countries right now for residency and living is actually six years. And then you start to get into the crazy countries like Andorra, which is twenty years. And I think Switzerland is is twenty years or or, or more. Maybe. <laughs> Andorra would be a really small place to spend twenty years. Yeah, exactly. Um so the so the the, the best ones are in that five year range and the hiccup of course is when you're naturalized you know the country is giving you citizenship with the expectation that you've made a life there and you're planning on continuing to to live in the country so a lot of people who have done like uh, you know second uh, residencies in a place like Paraguay they go get their residency they come back in 3 years expecting to apply for citizenship and they're declined because they have they have nothing there they don't have any Property or friends, or they don't speak Spanish. So you do have to country by country. You have to check to see what the rules are, are uh, for qualifying. Once you are, once you have your time in, and once you're eligible. So I
1: think one, one other point to make uh, when considering this, I know a lot of people when they're thinking of getting a second citizenship, they immediately jump to the financial options. I, I had one friend that that dropped right. his U.S. citizenship and went down to Dominica, picked up citizenship there, and Immediately he did, just didn't research it that well, and immediately regretted it because he realized that Dominica as a travel document was absolutely terrible <laughs> and, the best, yeah yeah and uh and so he started trying to travel and realized traveling was re- a big headache and then um and then also getting back into the u s became a real real struggle so um it's just something that you have to look into and try not to make a snap decision based on emotion and, and make sure you understand it really clearly.
2: A- absolutely right. The economic citizenships are the third option and there's I think five islands now in the Caribbean that offer this and they're the ones, you know, as you were saying, countries with bad travel documents, this is where a lot of them go. The wealthy people go to get uh, a second passport. So, you know, Chinese and Russians are the big buyers of a St. Kitts or a Grenada or a Dominica passport. And Dominica is cheaper because its its passport is has fewer visa free uh countries last i checked it was w- well under 100 it was it was in the 80s um i believe and the st kitts and grenada and st lucia and i think it's antigua uh, barbuda uh or barbuda they all have similar names i get them confused um those all those all have 120 plus uh options um you know an american passport an irish passport a portuguese passport are in the 130, 140, uh country range for visa free travel. So if you're in a, at the if you're at one hundred and twenty with a you know Saint Lucia passport, you're doing pretty good.
1: And there's there's kind of one other way that I've read up on in in terms of getting citizenship, which goes a little into the gray area. But if you have the flexibility to to move around and spend time, then that might also be an option. And that would be kind of through marriage, right?
2: Yes, and that's the you have to check the rules on that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can reduce the residency requirement time. Um, and so if you marry a local, so you marry a Colombian, th- rather than, I think it's five years for, uh, normal path for, uh, citizenship in Colombia. If you're married to a Colombian, it's, it's three years. So. That uh, could reduce the time to getting a, a second passport, but you've got, then you've got all the questions, right? They're going to make sure that you are married, that you're living together, that you're happy, that it's not a, a scam marriage like the U.S. does for people who try and get in with on fiancé visas and stuff like that. Um, the one interesting thing is in Uruguay, if you're married, period, you don't have to be married to an uh, Uruguayan, the residency time for citizenship goes from five years to three years.
1: Okay, wow, and, and do you know the rules for Brazil as well?
2: Uh, no, unfortunately, Brazil is not one of the countries I uh, keep in in my head. Mm-hmm. Brazil it, it is a very complex uh, country in general, and the, and unfortunately, I speak Spanish okay, but my Portuguese doesn't, yeah. so um, uh, I don't I don't uh, I don't keep that information uh, on mm-hmm. my, in my head as much as I do the others.
1: One of the interesting things about South America and Central America as well is there's so much European ancestry there, and, and that. Really, anyone could be Panamanian. Anyone could be Brazilian. You could be, you know, a blonde Gringo, or you could be dark skinned, or anything in between. And you could be, you know, you kind of blend into the crowd there, which is is not the same for a lot of countries, especially in Asia.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you, uh, you know, six foot white guy doesn't stand out quite so much in in Panama as they do in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you can you, you can blend in better and uh, and be you know. From a security perspective, be less of a less of a target um, because people can't uh, def- definitively tell that you're not from the country. Yeah,
1: makes sense. So going into the last two, there is protecting your assets, and this is one that I think it's overlooked by a lot of people, at least at an early stage before they've accumulated wealth and stuff. But one that's very important, and one I, I don't know as much about. So can you give us just an uh, an idea of you know what this flag is and, and why it's important?
2: Sure. So the you know the a- asset protection comes into into play. For a couple of reasons, Um, the 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 biggest one is if you know if you're an American, you know there's what a lawsuit filed every 37 seconds or something in the states, whatever the statistic is, Um, you're you're likely to be sued by somebody if you're living in the states at some point in your life, even if you have no money. Um, But if you have money, especially you know doctors in high risk uh, specialties, they would benefit from moving their assets into an offshore trust, and because the An onshore trust is still under the jurisdiction of the U.S., so even though you've given up your assets to the trust and the assets are no longer yours, they belong to the trust, you're just the beneficiary, a judge has jurisdiction over the the thing as it's – Said in law school or whatever. I didn't go to law school, but lawyers tell me this. I I forget what the Latin term is. Uh, So a judge could say, okay, well, it's the trust money in the bank, but um, ultimately it's your money because you're going to get it through being the beneficiary. So we're just going to bypass the time process and take the money out of the bank account and pay this judgment. Um, If your money is in an offshore trust, say in Nevis or Cook Islands, a U.S. judge has no jurisdiction over the thing, over the bank account or the asset. So even if they get a judgment against, you, the, the doctor, in this case, um, and you don't have any assets in the U.S. to pay the judgment. The plaintiff can now go to Nevis, but they got to start all over. Plus, they've got to put up a, a bond. Um, there's, there's and have to hire another attorney. And most of the world does not operate on a contingency view basis. So your your assets are, are fairly safe, even if they're just offshore um, and and not in a trust. But a trust is the ultimate asset protection uh, vehicle. And another asset protection vehicle would just be an offshore LLC. It's not as secure as a trust because you own the LLC and a US judge could hold you in contempt for not selling the assets of the LLC to uh, pay, the, pay the judgment. But still, the, if the assets in the LLC are outside of the US and you've got a second uh, residency, um, you, you can hop on a plane and you know make yourself and your assets uh, safe fairly easily the other The other thing an offshore trust uh does for you is estate planning so it's from a estate tax uh perspective if you say you have the the maximum estate tax exemption uh in uh, assets today, which is about five point four million dollars, you can move that five point four million give it to the grant it to the trust, so give it to the trust um and then that five point four million can grow to be a billion dollars before you die. But it's not your asset anymore. So when you die, there'll be no estate tax um, on that billion dollars.
1: Uh, Oh wow! So so anyone who became in control of the trust would then essentially inherit that.
2: And then and right, and then the then so you you'd be the beneficiary during your lifetime of the trust, and then secondary beneficiaries you would name in the trust documents for your kids, grandkids, whatever. Um, So it's it's a good estate planning uh, tool from that aspect, especially if you have assets that you think will grow. Quickly, because mm-hmm. who knows what the estate tax uh, exclusion exemption will be? You know, next year Trump wants to eliminate altogether, but the next guy could bring it back in at the previous um, maximum of a million dollars. So you got to take advantage of what you know today to be the tax rules uh, on the U.S. side.
1: And if you if you move assets to an offshore trust, do those assets then need to be offshore physically, or can you, could you still have? u s based assets in an, but held in an offshore trust
2: you you can have u s based assets held in an in an offshore trust, but going back to jurisdiction over the thing mm-hmm. um it it doesn't do you any good because the the judge can say okay well the the thing the house is here in the u s even though the trust owns it, you're the beneficiary of the trust. we're mm-hmm. going to force a sheriff's sale here in the u s so you you generally speaking you want offshore assets in offshore entities and onshore assets in onshore entities. Got it. And what do you
1: think that this type of structure makes the most sense for people once they hit a certain level of wealth, or more based on? Okay, if you're an American, really litigious country, and you're you know a doctor, I guess there's a lot of variables that go into it that you would want to consider. But um, I, I would suppose wealth level of wealth is one profession, and probably the country that that you're a citizen of.
2: Yeah, exactly. So you've got you've got two two factors. To uh consider at first, which is the you know do you do you have wealth at at risk, and are you a high risk person are you you know like again a, a specialist doctor you know dealing in the example the one attorney I know uses is uh premature uh babies if you if you uh, if uh <laughs> you're giving birth to premature babies so if you're in, in a, even if you have a low level of wealth but you 're in a high risk profession, maybe you set that offshore trust up sooner than you would otherwise. Um, and if you've got a bucket loads of wealth or need it for the estate planning, uh, purposes, but you have zero chance of ever being, uh, sued, mm-hmm. maybe you still do the, the offshore trust. The one key element that I try and tell our readers is, you know, the, the offshore trust is going to cost more than if, if it's done right with a proper attorney and, and thought. Uh, it's going to cost more than anything else, any other structure you could set up. So, you know, in my head, it's it's a million bucks. If you're going to move a million dollars offshore, that's when it makes sense to uh, consider an offshore trust. For some people, maybe $200,000 is enough if they're mm-hmm. in a high-risk uh, situation. Otherwise, you can always start with an offshore LLC to hold your offshore assets. And then when you get to the uh, level where you think you want or need a trust, you can the, just transfer the LLC into the trust, and the trust can own the LLC. So that'll avoid any uh, retitling issues for those offshore uh, assets, particularly real estate, which in most countries come with a uh, high transaction costs. Mm-hmm. Right. So then we go into the final
1: flag, which is overseas business and corporation. And I know this is a big one that we could get really deep into. Could probably do a, could definitely do an entire episode on it. So there's so many different situations out there based on what country you're from and what type of business you're operating. But, you know what what's the high level impact for a lot of people you know now there's a lot of internet based businesses there's a lot of people uh, investing in businesses overseas what is what's like the typical person kind of need to know and and understand about this
2: well so the first thing is are are you, you going to be living in the US or not living in the US uh, for the Americans uh listening and if you're going to be living in the US and setting up an offshore business it needs to be a, 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 a real offshore business, offshore, offshore activities. Um, you can't just say it's offshore because you incorporated in Nevis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will come with no no tax advantages or anything else. In, in my case, my business, it, we, we're a Nevis corporation um, we're operating with a representative office in Panama. We are able to, as Americans, uh, basically – Play like Apple, if you will. So if everybody, everybody understands, I think at this point that Apple has billions of dollars offshore of the U.S. because th- they earned that offshore and they haven't paid taxes in the U.S. on that, and they won't until they pay it out of those offshore entities into the parent company in the U.S. In our case, our offshore entity can hold profits for and have deferred taxes. Until those profits are, are paid out to us as individuals, so it's a way to um, grow your company with uh, those tax-deferred uh, dollars in a very in a very efficient way. Of course, then you want to be set up in uh, if you're have an office, an operating uh, office like we do, and be set up in a country like Panama, where Panama only taxes on money earned in Panama. So we don't actually earn any money in Panama; it's all earned through uh, online internet sales from client from clients outside of panama so that 's the the best scenario if someone is a consultant um doing say you're i don 't know you're you're a retired doctor actually this is an example of one of uh, one of our readers um, you're a retired doctor he was um a radiologist, so these days you can read uh, x rays on a com- on a computer wherever you' are in the world he uh moves outside of the u s he 's doing the work. Outside of the U.S., having his Nevis Corporation build a hospital in the U.S., and he's now ha- has himself set up similar to Apple, so his corporation can be uh, operating at a tax-deferred level. Any uh, salary he draws from that corporation, he can earn the foreign earned income exclusion, assuming he, he's, uh, you know, uh, qualifies for that uh, by, under the two ways for that, uh, either living or having bona fide residency. Um, and it's a very tax efficient way to uh, to set yourself up. So from th- those are the reasons for an offshore uh corporation. The other reason of course is if you're going to move to a country and set up a physical business. So if you're going to move to Thailand and set up a uh, a pizza stand, a uh, pizza shop in Chiang Mai, then you would Probably want to do that under a, a a Thai corporation,
1: right? And then maybe one of the easiest steps for people to to understand even before the incorporation and something that you mentioned earlier was the foreign earned tax uh, foreign earned income exclusion, which is I right. think it's around one hundred thousand or hundred and five thousand per year that you can get as long as you're making it overseas. It's not it's not U.S. based income. You can get that tax free, and I think that's a lot. Like a lot of people out there now, that right. are you know maybe these digital nomads or just kind of location independent people that are doing internet based businesses, and they're spending the majority of the year overseas. A lot of people don't even know about that, and that's a that's a huge huge uh, benefit if if people can take advantage of it.
2: Yeah, a- absolutely. I think the 2017 figure is $102,100. It's indexed to inflation now, <laughs> um, but the and it, so it goes. It goes back to well. There's two ways to. There's, I mean, this is a whole. There's lots of ways to set it up. The, the 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 way you want to set it up is the way I talked about with the the radiologist doctor. If you have a uh, um, unless you're being paid by a a company directly like a single company in the U S. You just work for one company. It doesn't matter where the money is paid from. It matters where you did the work. Mm. So if if you're sitting in we'll use Thailand again. If you're sitting in Thailand. Um, whatever, designing widgets for a widget company in the US and they pay you from their US uh, bank to your US bank a, a salary, um, you'd pay social security taxes in, the, in that version of the story. Mm-hmm. But you would be eligible if you're, if you're either a bona fide resident, which means you have legal residency and are technically liable for taxes in the country you are and have you can check some other boxes that show you're truly a resident of that country, mm-hmm. or... Qualify under the days test, which is you have to be 330 days in a foreign jurisdiction, um, then you can qualify for the foreign earned income exclusion and pay zero taxes on that first $102,000 to the US. Now you may have tax obligations in the country where you're actually mm-hmm. resident. But that's another reason to set yourself up with an offshore uh, corporation, for example, because then if you're living in Thailand and I don't know the Thai tax rules specifically, so there may be Loopholes that keep mm-hmm. you from being able to do this, but you have the Nevis corporation um that you're uh, being paid from, and you don't you only bring in enough money. actually, I do know the Thailand rules now. That I think about it. Thailand is a quasi jurisdictional or i'm sorry it's a remittance based uh jurisdiction, so you only pay taxes in Thailand on what you bring into the country um in the year it's earned so if you earned one hundred thousand dollars in two thousand and sixteen but you didn't bring it in until 2017 you'd pay no tax on that in Thailand so Thailand is actually a good uh quasi tax mm-hmm. haven for people to uh, to to work from anyway i could go on and on about tax yeah. i think i'm probably ram- ram- rambling at this point
1: no this is i mean this is one of the most important things i think it's it's an an easy one for a lot of people to take their first step but just because maybe they've been living in their con- their home country for so long and now just For the first year, second year, kind of going working overseas. It's not the first thing that they think about, but there's, there's huge financial, um, benefits if you can, if you can structure it like that. And just like one follow up question on, on that is that what we were just talking about with the foreign earned income exclusion, that's only for actual earned income, correct? Like if you, if you're living off dividends and and capital gains, there's not going to be a benefit
2: there for you. Exactly. And we hear, I hear at least once a year from, someone who considers themselves a day trader and they say, Well, I, I am I am earning that income. I'm day trading. I'm working. You know, the IRS doesn't look at it that way. Yeah. So um yes, it, it it's it's only earned income from from work, from a job that could be working for your own corporation, as we've mentioned, but it isn't from anything passive. So even you know rent even rental income from properties that you manage overseas yourself, that that's still passive income.
1: Gotcha. So you guys provide some amazing information. I love your website. I encourage all the, to, the listeners to go in and take a look at a lot of the material that you guys provide. But aside from that, what are some of the services that you guys provide?
2: So we, we have the, you know, the publishing services, the publishing products. Um, but the other big thing that we do is conferences. So we do what we call live and invest in and then fill in the country blank, um, for, uh, eight to nine countries every year. There's some standard ones that we do each year and then we we mix up uh, a couple of others um, and we may actually do one in Thailand uh, next year. And then we do three uh, topical uh, conferences, one in the U.S., for people just getting their feet wet about this idea of retiring overseas or retiring to another country. Um, we do an offshore conference. Uh, the next one of those is coming up in June here in Panama that covers all of these topics that we're talking about. And we have uh, my colleagues and friends from around the world coming in to talk specifically about residency options in Colombia, Dominican Republic, Portugal, banking options in Belize, et cetera. And then we do uh, a, a real estate investment conference uh, once a year as well. With the next one actually is in a couple of weeks here in Panama. Sounds like a lot of fun. So you're still traveling quite a bit. Uh, yeah, I, I, I actually am at most of the conferences. I'm, we've got a few people who can MC some mm-hmm. of the conferences so I don't have to be everywhere because it's, you know, a conference a month is probably <laughs> t- t- tiring me out a bit. Yeah. Plus, I've got my own per- personal things I've got to deal with with travel. So, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm on the road quite a bit.
1: Cool. And if, if listeners subscribe to some of your publications, what can they look forward to? Like, how often do you, do you guys put out content and, and newsletters?
2: So the 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 free offshore letter is twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and that's the easiest way to get started with with seeing uh, what I talk about. Um, then we have a, a monthly uh, paid publication for the offshore topic, which is called the Simon Letter, not to be confused with Simon Black. I know mm-hmm. that's you know with our names being similar uh, causes a little bit of confusion. Mm-hmm. And but your um, your name's real, at least. It might yeah it my name sound my name sounds made up, but it's real um, his, his is much cooler, but it's not so right. yeah, it's hard to tell um, which which way is better and then on the real estate side, we have a monthly uh uh publication for the, that just specifically finds good real estate opportunities, so it's kind of a, a real estate well it's a, it's a real estate investment newsletter, so we we find uh, specific uh places where we think uh people should invest specific properties developments projects. And then, um on the lifestyle side, we have what's called the, uh, the overseas living letter, which is, uh, a publication that talks about, uh, a specific destination each month where we think people would be interested in either retiring or living. Um, you know, retirement has been, uh, the overseas retirement has been a, a, a beat for a while, but the, the demographics are getting younger. So we hear more and more from people who are in their, you know, even in their 30s with kids saying, Hey, where can I go and set up a business or, or, you know, set up, you know, investments that I can live off of uh, the income locally. So the, this idea of, as you said, the digital nomads and all that, it's becoming a, a, a much bigger uh, topic across, uh, across different ages.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So one just final question in closing is a little bit off topic, but in June, we're going to do, we're actually hosting a charity walk across Ireland. So we're going to walk from Dublin to Galway and stop at four or five places in between. And then afterwards, we're going to spend one week just kind of hanging out at our favorite spot. I didn't know if you had a favorite spot in Ireland that is just kind of like a cool little city or, or kind of a special place.
2: Well, well you'll, you'll enjoy Galway. Galway is a great uh, place. We lived in Waterford when we were there. Um, there's, a, there's a little um, port town south of Cork called Kinsale and there's not there's not much there but it's cute and quaint and it's it's a bit of a tourist attraction at this point um and it but it's worth the day if you end up in that part of in that part of Ireland also um the town of Bantry on the on the west coast which is near the ring of Kerry um is another uh, is another place that uh, we always like to spend time
1: awesome we'll, t- we'll definitely take a look at that i think after after about 3 weeks of walking we'll just want to sit down in a 400-year-old <laughs> pub and and uh, drink ourselves to sleep
2: <laughs> you won't you won't you won't have a problem finding one of those anyway there,
1: there we go at least this has been great uh very uh unique and niche show for us and something that i know is gonna gonna really hit an emotional chord with with our listeners something that's it's a very interesting topic and um that we we totally support so thanks for coming on show and sharing your your wisdom ex- and experience with uh with our listeners
2: no problem i, I appreciate the opportunity thank you time to start planting
0: some flags sam
1: Yes, indeed. Well, I think we actually have planets and flags. I don't know if we've done it intentionally, but well, speaking of, where are you right now?
0: So I am in Bali. I just got done spending a week in Ubud, which is kind of the the hippie capital of the world when it comes to yoga and um,
1: raw eating and colonics and
0: other kind of crazy
1: things (laughs) sounds like all the all the things that you don't like to be around
0: (laughs) yeah you know what the yoga was great it was uh i mean it's called yoga barn which looks just like a barn you're surrounded by rice fields and there's probably like 80 just beautiful people just all around you just doing you know just super intense into yoga people have traveled across the world just to come and they had their lululemon uh Yoga tights on, and yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a bad vacation. I I liked it.
1: I just had a great image of you and your Lululemon tights on doing yoga.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely don't own any yet, but uh, I did have a good time, and I I recommend it.
1: That's cool, man. So that's not exactly a flag, but sort of. I mean, no, it's not a flag.
0: Well, actually, I, I was looking in. I was looking at the five flags again, and one of them. I guess it's kind of like just what you call your your playground. I think it's the fifth flag where you spend your money, and preferably a place with no sales tax or value added tax. And to to us, I, I guess Southeast Asia kind of is where we spend our money because it's like, for example, when I'm back in the U S., I might get a massage once a year, but here in Asia, and whether it's Bali or Thailand, I'm getting one every other day just because it's so cheap, and we're just mm. arbitraging the the cost of living.
1: Well I think being international, living international and knowing your way around international foreign countries is kind of a step in the right direction. It's not specifically a flag, but I think it's a good step. Like if if it, let's just say there's some type of world crisis or something happens in the US or whatever and you want to go abroad I mean, people that haven't traveled abroad would be very uncomfortable in that situation. But for you, it's very easy just to just get on a plane and travel to probably one of a hundred countries and feel feel very comfortable. Yeah,
0: definitely not a hundred I would feel comfortable in, but there's probably <laughs> a handful that if I had to, I mean if somebody said, you know, Johnny, here's ten million dollars, you can never go back to the US again, there are, you know, at at least five other countries I would happily live in for the rest of my life. And I think a lot of people, even though 10 million would be a ton of money. They'd be so afraid to never be able to go back to the US that they wouldn't take it.
1: Well, I mean, I can sort of speak to that a little bit because I I was looking pretty heavily at denouncing my citizenship a few years back. And I I, I basically did a, lot, I did a lot of research. I was working with lawyers and talking to people that were in similar situations and some people that had denounced their citizenship. For me, it just didn't add up because... You know, our good friend, or not good friend, but somebody that's in our network, uh, Derek Silvers, he did this about, I don't know how many, I want to say eight years ago, where he denounced his U.S. citizenship. He was actually the person I was talking about in the the episode with Leaf, was he went and denounced his citizenship after he got a Dominica passport. And then as soon as he did it, he was like, holy shit, what did I do? Because now he, it took him forever to, you know, any type of place he wanted to travel, it took him forever. And getting back in the U.S. was really, really difficult. So you just don't know what's going to happen in the future, which is why I think a lot of this stuff makes sense to do. But getting into a deeper level of this, which is talking about denouncing potentially your your home country citizenship, is just more of a gamble than I really wanted to take.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think I would actually denounce my citizenship. I I think I would want that option to not go back. But I, I think if I had to take that step and give back my U.S. passport of citizenship, unless I had a, a proper EU one or something else that I, I knew was, you know, just as good. Um, I would trade mine, you know, put today for a, you know, something from Scandinavia or one of those Mm -hmm. EU passports, but, I wouldn't just. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go for a you know a Belize passport or a Dominican Republic passport or something like that.
1: So you spend almost the entire year outside the U.S. How much time do you spend in the U.S. now each year?
0: So last year uh, I just did my taxes. I was there for I think twenty eight days, which is less than um, the maximum of I think it was what thirty five days or whatever. You have to be out of the country mm-hmm. for three hundred and thirty days of the year.
1: Okay, so you spend almost no time there. So the big the big pain in the ass for people like you and I is we're spending almost all of our time outside the U.S., but we still have to file taxes in the U.S. And that gets even more and more difficult, even though you're getting the foreign income tax exclusion, which is awesome if anyone out there doesn't know about that. You get basically $100,000 tax-free each year if you're living outside of the U.S. and earning your income technically outside the U.S. But the more that you invest, and especially if you invest in like foreign countries, dude, the tax situation is insane. Just the, the amount of reporting and tax filing that you have to do is crazy. And I think that's why a lot of people, every every, every single quarter now, it's record numbers of people in the US that are denouncing citizenship. It's like every single new quarter is, is, is new record numbers. So it's, I wouldn't say it's massively popular, but a lot of people are starting to say, can't do this anymore.
0: I don't think that is going to be either you or I anytime soon though. So that's us <laughs> just to spit that out there. Yeah. But I, I I, think out of these other flags, which ones have you already done either accidentally or on purpose and which ones do you want to do next?
1: Okay, so banking, residency, citizenship, offshore corporations, and asset protection are the five flags. Mm-hmm. So I've done banking, Uh. I wouldn't, I would say I did that more for a practical purpose, which was because I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and China. I just got a bank over there and then I went to Singapore and I was so blown away by their banks there, how nice they are and everything. I'm like, well, I might as well set one up while I'm here. So I have those two. I actually have a bank in Thailand as well. Um, Residency, I, I sort of have because I, have you heard of Thai elite, Johnny?
0: Yes, I have.
1: Okay. So I have Thai elite. It's a, I have the five-year plan. So that's, it's not technically residency, but it's, it, it basically is. Uh, it's kind of a loophole, kind of a backdoor into Thailand. And we know how like difficult it is to like, get in and out of Thailand now, right? I,
0: th- I think the best way to describe it is being able to buy diplomacy in the country. <laughs> <laughs> Buying a diplomatic visa. So if you guys don't know what a Thai visa or a Thai elite is, it's basically a... Kind of a country club membership to the country where you spend. <laughs> h- how much was the the five year one?
1: The five year was just over fifteen thousand U.S.
0: So if, if someone spends a lot of time in Thailand and they don't want to deal with their normal visa situation and they want kind of a um, you know a free government pass almost, you can pay this fifteen grand. It's good for five years. So if you really break it down. Either yearly or monthly, it's not as bad as as it sounds. Uh, you know, per year that would be three grand. So you know, so mm-hmm. if you were actually spending a lot of time there, coming coming in and out, it might be worth it for some people. Um, I think in Sam's case, definitely, because you're always kind of coming in and out. And it's uh, what are some of the benefits? How, how do they make it easier for you?
1: Well, first off, you never have to walk in an airport again because you get picked up. This is the coolest part. Honestly, this is almost worth it in its own right. But Let's say you're flying into Thailand, you get picked up by one of those like golf carts. like, But it's a nice golf cart, right? It's got the roof and it's got you know, air conditioning. That's, that's the works. So right as you're getting off the plane, there's two people there waiting for you. They put you in a golf cart. You never have to walk. You get driven straight up to a secret kind of privileged uh, immigration line. You don't even have to give them your passport. They fill out all the details. You're still in the cart. They stamp your stuff. You walk five feet out to the other side. The cart's there. They take you to a lounge. They go to the baggage claim for you. They get your bags. They drive you on the cart outside to a 7 Series BMW, and then that takes you to wherever you're going to go. So you literally <laughs> don't have to touch bags, immigration. You don't have to walk. You literally don't walk. You just step in the golf cart out and into a 7 Series BMW. And then likewise, coming into the airport, They pick you up in the seven series. They bring you to the lounge. You hang out there. They do the same immigration, but the reverse way. And they drive you right up to the gate. It's it's pretty awesome. Um, But most people look at you thinking you're handicapped or wounded because, (laughs) you know, why would you like this, this able bodied person be in this golf cart? So that's that's really cool. There's a lot of other benefits, especially if you get the full one with the 20 year deal, which I think is seventy five thousand dollars. But it's it's I mean, basically a citizen at that point.
0: Yeah, I definitely see that. And, and, you know, I, from Thailand's point of view, I think it's a genius idea because I think every country should have some type of, you know, residency elite program. The U.S. should have one and say if someone wants to spend enough money and be able to, you know, kind of vet and have a, it's almost like, you know, you're not going to mess around and do anything stupid in Thailand, um, like law wise because You'll lose your $15,000 investment if, if you did. So if someone, you know, was going to go to the U.S. Or,
1: or maybe I'm protected by that. Ah, maybe you are. (laughs) That'd be, that'd be a nice
0: perk as well. But I mean, I think, I don't know what the price, you know, for the U.S. would be. Maybe it would be a lot more. And I think a smart way to do it would be to only have a limited amount every single year and have that price keep going up as they start selling out of it. And if somebody, some you know, baller from the Middle East or baller from China wants to drop a hundred grand, you know, to get a five-year residency in the U.S. with you know, kind of some perks, why not? It'd be good for our economy.
1: I think it's a great program, and I've at least have from the people I've talked to in Thailand, they all think it's a great system. There's, you know, it's you know how hard it is in Thailand now. Like if you're if you're just there for a few months, like we have been typically the last couple of years, not that big of a deal. But people like Brian and Tang that are from Art of FX. They're living in Bangkok. I'm like, yo, why are you guys not doing this? Because they're leaving every month or in some cases every two months, but they're flying, they have to fly to like Singapore or Hong Kong and stay for a week and deal with all that crap. I'm like, you know how much your money you're spending each year? If you fly out, let's say six to eight times a year and you're flying to Hong Kong, KL, Singapore, I mean, you're spending, but between flights and hotels, you're spending three grand a year. Plus... Think of all the headache, think of all the distractions from work, like you know when you have to do all that stuff, so I think it makes a lot of sense for a lot of people um even though I'm not using it that much right now, I'm still glad I did it. It was awesome,
0: yeah, it sounds like a fun thing, especially because you had a uh, yeah property in Thailand. I'm sure we could do a whole episode on this, but let's kind of mm-hmm. move on to the to the next one so for for me, uh I happen to have a bank account in Thailand, but it was only because I've been living there for so long, and it was just an easy way for me to transfer money through Bangkok Bank, which has a branch in New York into my Bangkok Bank Thailand account and be able to withdraw money without ATM fees. Uh, I can mm-hmm. already do that with Charles Shab, but I try not to overuse that because I have heard that if, if they just see that, you know, you're never back in the US and you just keep kind of just raping their system, um, and, you know, getting these $5 fees mm-hmm. uh, returned all the time, they could shut down your account. I don't think they would with mine because I also invest with them, but you know, I I also just feel bad. I'm like, why why are these guys wasting five dollars every time I withdraw money? So I got a Bangkok bank account. I suggest that to anyone who lives in a country for more than a year. Just just get it. There's there's very little downsides to getting one, and I think it's going to get harder and harder to get foreign bank accounts.
1: Yeah, I agree totally. And so is that is that your only foreign bank? Thailand?
0: My, oh yeah, that's my only foreign bank.
1: So How do you keep it? How do you keep balance in there? Would you just transfer money every like three months just to keep enough money so you can withdraw money?
0: Yeah. So I normally just withdraw... I transfer two or three grand at a time just to have enough spending cash. Uh, I try not to get over that limit of whatever $10,000 or whatever it is so I don't have to report it. Oh, so it's, yeah. It's, yeah. So Good. it's really just enough for spending cash.
1: Cool. Yeah, that makes sense um and you know another just key note for listeners out there you always have to keep in mind like banks aren't just because it's a bank doesn't mean that your money is safe that's kind of traditional thinking but i know at least two or three different occasions of people that i know you know that are direct contacts of mine that have lost money holding deposits in a bank so it's not it's not common in fact it's very very rare but you always have to be thinking ahead and if you all of your money is in a bank in one country, and let's say whatever country that is has a big you know financial crisis, like Greece, you know think about Greece. All the people that had all their money in Greece a couple of years back when everything froze up, you saw how long the lines were to get your money out of Greece, you know, out, out of an ATM, you, you, and it was like a hundred euros a day or something. You were standing <laughs> in line for eight hours. So it's it it's not a it's not a common thing, but it's smart to think about these things. And if possible, I think setting up a bank in a foreign country is a really smart move if you have the opportunity.
0: Yeah, definitely. I would say that is something that every single person should aspire to do this year. Just just have one, even if you're not going to put a ton of money in, just to have it now, just in case you want it later and it becomes harder mm-hmm. and harder to open. So number two, the uh, legal residence in the tax haven, don't have that. Um, I've been Playing the, the tourist card wherever I go for three to six months at a time, and as far as the foreign income exclusion, that allows me to be a bona fide resident in a place right. because I'm just there for so long. But it would be nice to be a legal resident somewhere. Uh, I think the place I would I would do it if I if I had to do something right now would be Portugal. If yeah. I if I was if I had five hundred thousand liquid to invest in a property, you get residency. I mean, permanent residency, which is amazing, and I, I think especially if you're married and you you know, you know get a two-for-one deal, that, that's a great value.
1: Yeah. And you can also do Panama. One I looked into pretty recently was Panama, which is you can essentially just open a bank account and put $10,000 in, go there. You have to go there and set it up in person. And I think you only have to spend one day a year there, but you have to do it for three years, which isn't much. But just get it, you know, flying to Panama depending on where you're living in the world can be, you know, can be kind of a pain. Uh, but that's an easy one. There's a lot of pretty easy ones if you're interested in citizenship. It's not the most important one to me. Um, but it's it's one that's pretty easy if you look into it and and have a, a target in mind.
0: I think the only reason why I wanted the I would want a Portugal one is just so I can be part of the EU and be able to just, you know, stay there as long as I want, not to deal with the the Schengen visas or anything like
1: that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
2: that would be but, cool. Uh,
0: also, if you guys have any ancestry, uh, if you are one eighth Irish like Sam is, is, is that what it <laughs> was? <laughs> you know, well, or I yeah. thought I
1: was gonna be fifty percent, but then I took the DNA test and I was only two percent. But I, I think I actually looked into it for Ireland because I wanted to do that, but it, it was it, it was really it was like my great great grandfather. It was. "Quote unquote Irish," and I, it was just going to be too hard to trace, like all the genealogy and charts and everything. So I just gave up on it.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, if you are a child of an immigrant, look into that country because it, it might be pretty easy for you to get your a second citizenship. I asked my parents; both of them renounced their Taiwanese citizenships and passports. Um, ah.
1: which why did they do that?
0: Uh, I think they just got lazy. I, I think you know, after they're in the U.S. for twenty years, they just stopped renewing it. And, I think, mm. I don't, I don't think they renounced it. I think they just kind of stopped renewing and, you know, they figured, you no, know, why do they need it? For me, the only reason why I would even want that as a secondary passport isn't because I want to go, to go to Taiwan for that long, uh, or because it's such a great passport. It's just because they are part of a- Asian, a- A-S-E-A-N. And I think uh-huh. in the future, that might have more power as in, you know, being able to just live freely in a- any other Asian country. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think I can get that anymore. So, but, I recommend to anyone who is a child of an immigrant or maybe even if your grandparents are immigrants, regardless of where you know where they're from Poland or you know or Ireland, look into that
1: yeah, that would be a cool one to have i mean it would just be cool to have a second passport second citizenship anyways uh I looked into the Saint Kitts one and it's it's actually gone up in price. I think it was four hundred thousand dollars now you have to buy a five hundred thousand dollar property. Um, but that's a pretty easy one and it's a good travel document. And the the other one I looked into a long time ago, Johnny was Brazil. And I brought this up on the episode of leaf, but I I need to check into the rules on that. I believe you used to be able to go down there, fall in love with a beautiful woman, get married. And six months later, you could get citizenship. I don't know if that applies. I know it's a little bit on the gray area, but worth noting.
0: I don't think it'd be too hard to find a beautiful Brazilian girl falling in love with, that, with either. <laughs> either. But will that, they love didn't. us? <clears throat> <Yeah. laughs> so uh, I guess aside from that, I think the... I th- okay, so what else do we have? We have keeping your Off- assets. Yeah, yeah,
1: Offshore Corporation is the fourth one. And then Asset Protection is the fifth one or so, vice versa.
0: So I actually just started a company in Belize this year. Unbelievable, I know, but uh, <laughs> I I haven't actually looked into how it all works. I just know that last year, you know, in 2016, I guess my my taxes were way over 100 grand. My my um earned, my earned income, and I think I'm going to be hit with a big bill this year. And I regret not doing this sooner. So I figured I don't even know what my income is going to be this year, but I just want to have that in place just in case. So. I think we'll we'll have more on that as I go through the process and I understand it more, but i am i i I am operating i guess a belize l l c now
1: cool so that that's a cool one, and this stuff gets really complicated. I know a lot of people on boss lounge have been talking about trying to set up an episode on it, and it's such a difficult topic to t- to try to condense into a one hour episode because Every single situation, there's so many variables, and like from what country you're from, like Johnny's a US citizen, and what type of income you have, where you're making that income, where your residency is. I mean, it, there's literally a thousand different variables. Um, I know some people that are American citizens that do it effectively because of the certain type of business. They have some tax deferral in there, but you would really kind of need to like break out five or six different scenarios and try to cover how you could. Facilitate kind of uh, a good offshore structure with that. So, once you dive into it, Johnny, make sure you, you let us know about how to do that. I think there's some really cool stuff you could do with yours just because you being off uh, living outside the US and because of your type of income, uh, having so much earned income through different sources and some passive income. I'd be interested to in know what you can do with it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, look forward to that in a future episode as I. Figure this out and share with you guys. So the last flag is the playgrounds where we talk about where we spend our money, preferably with no sales or value-added
1: tax. Well, the, actually, uh, according to this flag's theory, it's asset protection. But I think I think there's five and six flags in a lot of different places, you know, different, depending on people's theory and philosophy. So let's talk about yours.
0: Yeah, so I think ours we we both do accidentally. I don't necessarily buy things in countries just to get the the tax refund. I've never actually stood in that line to refund my tax before.
1: (laughs) Have you? I actually did it in Thailand and it was for like $40. And as I got in line, I go, you know what? I just love this country so much. I'm just going to, I'm not even going to redeem it. I'm just going to let them have it. I just got like a thank you and I just walked out of the line.
0: Oh. That's pretty kind of you. I think if it was gonna be a big purchase, like you know, if I was somehow on a shopping spree, which I don't think that would ever happen, uh or even if I just bought like a new MacBook or something, and mm-hmm. it was gonna be a couple hundred bucks, I would definitely stand in line to get that back. <clears throat> not even necessarily just to save money, because with Apple products at least, they're usually ten or twenty percent more expensive anyways in other countries. So you're yeah. not saving any money; you're just not getting ripped off um by buying it somewhere else.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But, you know, definitely, I think, I mean, I guess I end up buying things, you know, I, 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 I really believe that we have it so good in the U.S. that whatever it is, even though we think things are cheaper in other countries, in reality, if you want something that is good quality and a name brand, if you, if it's always cheaper back in the U.S. because we never pay full retail price. Everything's always on sale. Uh, we order things online and it's always, you know, Thirty percent off or fifty percent off, whatever it is. So you know, and our retail price is you know is just is going to be the lowest in the world, anyways. It's for name brand products like mm-hmm. anything Nike or North Face or you know, um, sh- you know, shoes or anything like that. That I, b- I end up buying everything in the U.S. anyways, and and don't deal with trying to save money outside.
1: Yeah, I agree totally. Every every time I fly international, people that I know, like in China or in South America. They're always asking me to bring them designer name stuff because in their countries, especially in those two examples, things can be marked up, you know, two times, three times or more. Uh, And then there's there's the last one that I'm not sure if it how important it is to you. It's important to me, but it's a lot harder to put in place, which is asset protection. Is that something you've given any consideration to? So.
0: The asset protection that I'm doing now, I guess, is just trying to have as many things under my US LLC as possible and and no longer under my personal name. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that is the first step. Then the second step, I guess, would be to start having things go through my, my Belize, um, you know, corporation, my my Belize corporation. And Mm. that's starting now. So, you know, a lot of the new, new income I have for 2017 is, is all going through there instead.
1: Well, the cool thing with with you and I guess me in a sense is the type of work we do is relatively low on the lit- litigation side. We're not doctors. We're not attorneys. And because and I, I know a lot, a big one for a lot of Western countries, especially in the USA, is if you own physical property, say in the USA, and let's just say it's in California and you're gone the entire year, but some kid is riding his bike across your front lawn, trips on a sprinkler head and and breaks his arm you can still be liable for a lot of that stuff, right? So because we don't really own any physical assets in the USA, just by definition, we have a lot less liability.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that's actually another reason why I... I, Even though it sounds amazing in theory for me to start owning apartment blocks, it's it's (laughs) going to be so much more hassle than it's actually worth probably.
1: Yeah, I agree totally. And if anyone's interested in... Episode the last episode we had with Phil Canella and also Stan the Annuity Man on annuities and life insurance products. In a lot of cases, those are creditor protected. So, a classic example is O.J. Simpson has a tremendous amount of his wealth locked up in annuities, which pays him monthly div, uh, distributions, and the creditors can't touch it. So, uh, it's you know obviously a very controversial guy, but. Uh, one case in which annuities have protected his wealth and he's living off that now and creditors can't touch it
0: wow that's crazy so i guess it does definitely make sense uh, even if you have something that's us asset protected that that would be step mm-hmm. 1 and this step 2 would be to have it protected in another country where are you by the way I have, I have no idea
1: and i just got done um the month in tahoe and then drove down through paso robles which is really interesting wine country in kind of central california And took a nine hour train ride down to San Diego last night. And that's where I'm at before I head back across to good old FLA. Oh, you're going back
0: to Florida. You know, in San Diego, you could just make a quick stop down to Mexico and have some tacos real quick.
1: Dude, I've been wanting to go to Tijuana. I've been to San Diego probably a half dozen times and I've never made it to Tijuana. And it's just, I'm always like a day short on time. So good to leave stuff to be desired. I, I like this part of the world. so I'll definitely be back, but Tijuana, I had Mexico all December. I'm kind of, I'm kind of over it for a bit. I'm ready for Europe.
0: Okay. Makes sense. And we can meet up in Europe for sure. Uh, and I, I love how our investment podcast just happens to also be a travel podcast for, for, completely by accident. Um, and I wanna big a big give a big, big thank you to all of our listeners from all around the world. I mean, it's it's crazy how many people, you know, just either are part of the Boss Lounge or just write in or leave reviews that are from every single country. So it's not just Americans. And, you know, that's why we really try to keep, you know, our episodes as diverse as possible, even though Sam and I are both from the US and a lot of the opportunities do stem from there, uh, but this week I want to acknowledge and give a big thank you to Jaylen Seventeen Eighty Three for leaving a five star review of the podcast. She says, "Awesome! I just discovered this podcast yesterday, and I've already binge listened to five episodes. Keep up the content. Love the con- love the content. Keep it up.
1: That's great." That's a yes. lot. Of, that's that's got to be a world record, and uh, or at least a podcast record for five in a if, five and twenty four hours. If anyone beat that, let us know. We'll uh, <laughs> I don't know. We'll buy you a beer or a coffee somewhere along the line.
0: I, I'm I'm sure there, there's some people that just dive in thinking like, man, what you know? How come we? never knew any of these you know a lot of a lot of things that we talk about in uh these episodes or we learn for ourselves we're like man why aren't these things taught in high school why aren't these things taught in college why aren't these things our our parents have taught us so i'm glad that we are finding all this out now and if you want to help support the show spread the word so more people like you can find it please take your take the time to go to the itunes app uh, or you know on your mac you know on your macbook or um, even on your windows just download itunes go to the store search for invest like a boss and leave us a review and it'll help way more than you know so i we really appreciate that
1: so see you guys next week for episode 47 and we'll announce the guest when we release the episode
0: all right see you guys next week bye bye Thanks for listening to the Best Like Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at bestlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If
1: you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you
2: guys next week.